0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to spend some time in this portion of the program talking about power. Now, at least you think we're going to dive into a bit of a thesis on how to reduce your energy bills and uh, save money. Uh, No, not quite that kind of power. But power, nevertheless, a topic that while most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about in a direct fashion, we nevertheless are engaged in it. Some of us exercise it, others have a thirst or a yearning for it. It's something that we think about at certain levels, and yet we have this very odd relationship with power. We know certainly that the old adage, what is it, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what of our relationship to this topic of power from a spiritual standpoint my next guest tonight has taken some time to dive deeper into this very equation, and he details his findings and really kind of kind of pulling back, so to speak, the, the layers of the onion to help us better understand our relationship to power inside the pages of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. It is written by author, executive editor of Christianity Today, Andy Crouch. And Andy, thanks so much for being on the program with us. Thank you, Craig. I'm delighted to be here. Fascinating topic. It's something that, as I say, well, we probably don't get up every day and think specifically about this topic. It's one that we're we're tied into on a day by day basis, and a lot of us find ourselves even in this in this struggle for or against power of one sort or another, uh, literally daily, don't we?
1: It's part of being a human being, I think. It's actually part of being a living, any living creature uh, has some kind of power because power in the most basic sense is just the ability to make a difference in the world, to make some kind of change in the world. And if you're alive, you're doing that one way or another. But as human beings, we have much more complex kinds of power than other creatures do, other parts of creation do, and that's ultimately because we're, we're made in the image of God in, in a way that other creatures aren't. And I think that's why every human being, um, you know, you mentioned a yearning for power. Every human being kind of wants room to, to make something of value and worth. But then also this has become very distorted uh, by our own sin and the ways that we've uh, distanced ourselves from God.
0: Indeed, we see uh, laid out literally from the Garden of Eden uh, the capacity of power to either do good or do evil. And then it seems as if it's been a, a history-long, lifelong struggle for mankind in trying to deal with, well, what exactly is our relationship to power? What do we do with it? Why do we yearn for it? How do we corrupt it? How do we drive it in the right direction so that it can, in fact, do more mm-hmm. good than it does evil? You know, when you, when you lay it out
1: like that, you realize in a way the whole story of Scripture is a story about power. It's about the original power that human beings were meant to have. They're made in the image of God. They're the climax of creation in Genesis 1. And they're given dominion. You know, that's a power word over the whole creation. These very frail, vulnerable creatures, just like you and me, are are told that they're to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and, you know, all this stuff that pre-technological humanity couldn't Directly control and yet they 're given this vision that they 're there to represent the Creator in the midst of creation, but then something goes very wrong, and I think you 'd sum it up by saying they try to uh, declare depend- uh, declare independence from God, they try to separate themselves from God and use their power for themselves. And the power that we were meant to have, which was meant to be the, for the flourishing of the whole world, ends up being kind of turned in on our own uh, benefit, our own self-protection. And then the question becomes, how is God going to intervene to set this story right? And that, in many ways, is, is the story of the rest of the Bible.
0: And it really is amazing, as you point out. I mean, literally, in the opening chapter of Genesis, we see the first action of God, a display of his power. As he engages in his creative power to bring about planet Earth, then we see later on once mankind is about the scene. Uh, first, an account of the power struggle between Lucifer and God Himself, right. and then later on man's power struggle as we engage in this battle in the Garden of Eden. Eden, and it seems as if this this issue of kind of a a power struggle with God or against God has kind of been a component from day one, hasn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, and this was actually true even in the world where
1: the where the book of Genesis was first written down because the other creation stories that were told by the the gods of Babylon or the you know the religion of Babylon all said that the world began with a conflict uh, they were all conflict stories. The amazing thing about Genesis one is it does not have it doesn't begin with conflict the conflict comes in later, and the The root conviction of Genesis 1 is that when God uses his creative power, it brings only abundance. It's not kind of a zero-sum game, where if I win, you lose, or if you win, I lose. Instead, you get more and more flourishing. Uh, what happens, though, when the man and the woman are tempted, <laughs> and when they give into that, and when that sets in motion, really, history as we know it, is power becomes about conflict, and it becomes about competition. It's no longer about mutual flourishing, where we actually both could win. It's about one of us is going to... To dominate uh, mm. the other, or one force is going to dominate the other, and we start to believe that that's the realest form of power. That the the most real power is the power that can make you do something you don't want to do rather than the power that can call into being a world or new kinds of creativity, new kinds of
0: culture uh, that
1: actually benefits everyone.
0: So what's fascinating about this, then, is we really get pulled into this topic, Andy, of power in relationship to whether it's being used for uh, malevolent purposes or, on the other hand, malevolent purposes, Mm -hmm. that impacts every relationship that we have. I mean, certainly with God, I mean, sin is what better description of the power struggle uh, that exists between mankind and God uh, than to see sin and and how that power fight's going on, and not just, though, on the vertical plane, but even on the horizontal plane in our relationships. I mean, think of the young teenager who's rebelling against his parents, and all of a sudden, there's this power struggle that we see that's being displayed there, even the friction between husband and wife and relationships at that level oftentimes are, are demonstrative of this fight over power.
1: They really are about power, and, uh, and and I think that's because, in many ways, it's the most it's the most fundamental thing we're given to work with as human beings, either for good or for bad. Um, and so you do find it in every relationship, actually, every workplace, every church, every family, and and most of us, realistically, the place where most of us have the most power is in our family relationships, especially if we're parents. But even even as uh, those of us who are parents know, children have tremendous power in their relationship with their parents. Mm-hmm. And and of course, that's why so much of the Bible story is the story of families that either get it somewhat right, never entirely right, uh, and sometimes get it terribly wrong. Um, and, you know, again, we often think, you know, when we think of power, I think we often think of, you know, politics or perhaps military power, and those are very real But when I started to dive into this issue, I realized actually all of us confront these issues every single day. I confront it in my own home, not just when I'm out doing allegedly powerful things, but even in choosing how I relate to my wife and my children, my neighbors. It happens at every scale of human society. Well, even
0: deeper than that, perhaps, Andy, is the power struggle that goes on internally. I mean, look, for example, (laughs) Paul talked about, you know, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know to do good, and yet I do. But not daily, have to die into the flesh. Don't we see demonstrated there, in that sense, an internal power struggle going on? Do we de- yield to God? Do we de- yield to the devil? Who's going to kind of get control here?
1: I think that's an amazing observation. And what it always, I think, uh, for many people, the real question in life is not actually, does God exist? I think most people no God exists, and Paul says, even those who don't believe that sort of suppress the truth. they still know the truth. but the real question is, is God good <laughs> mm. and and especially, if I serve God, well, does that mean I have to give up things I want? Does that mean I have to give up what 's good and the the root of of every abuse of power is the idea that that we can't both get something good, either I and god i can't god can 't get what 's you know good for God and good for me, or you and I, if we get locked in a power struggle, we start to believe either I win or you win. And when that enters into our relationship with God, we've basically believed the very thing the serpent says in Genesis uh, 3, which is, God's actually jealous of his power and he doesn't want you to have all of it, so you better eat that fruit so that you'll have what God doesn't want you to have and that's the fundamental lie, that God wants you to have something that would actually be good for you, but that God
0: doesn't want you to have. And that's that's an amazing point that you make there because there is an aspect of this power that we define in the flesh and I mean, we just bring up the topic, we think of power, it's the energy to drive to do something, to accomplish something, and we often think that well, the greatest display of power is when we're flexing our muscles to use power. Failing perhaps to recognize that it somehow there's there's another aspect that can show how powerful we can be that in the flesh might seem to be weak, but in the spiritual realm is in fact very powerful. We'll talk a bit about that, too, as we continue our conversation today. Andy Crouch on the line with us today. He, executive editor of Christianity Today and the author of a new book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dissecting today in this edition of Lifeline all of the power struggles that we see at so many levels within our relationships, within our history, Uh, really going back to the beginning of time tonight with Andy Crouch. Um, he of course does not go cool quite back to the beginning of time, but he's been around for a while. Enough to be able to be executive editor of Christianity Today, a prolific writer. One of his other best-selling books includes Culture Making, Recovering Our Creative Calling. We're talking today, though, about his latest book, newly published by University Press called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Interesting, Andy, when we talk about the ways in which sometimes power gets distorted. We always have that sense that power is about getting my way. Huh. And if I just get my way, I'm somebody that's very powerful. And yet, sometimes surrendering parts of ourselves, while perceived perhaps in the flesh to be weakness, actually can be quite powerful, can't it?
1: Yes, and uh, you know, it's amazing how often, you, how much time you spend in the first chapter of Genesis when you start thinking about this, because of course, the first chapter of Genesis begins with god the creator who we know as christians is three persons three and one and there's that interesting moment in Genesis one where god actually says let us make humankind and that uh... creator is already complete he has his way if you want to put it that way already without making the world and yet this god desires to bring into being a world that's going to have all of these other creatures starting with very simple creatures uh in the first days of creation as it as the story is told but then culminating in these creatures who are made in his image he actually wants partners and so when we think about the highest form of power i think we do often think boy if i really had power i would just say you know do it and people would do it <laughs> they would basically be little uh... robots obeying my commands Um and this is what we think it would be like to be god to be able to just move things around and move uh... persons around without regard to what they want but it seems like the deeper form of power is actually to call into being other other persons who can actually collaborate with you because that's what god essentially invites these creatures made in his image to do to be his representatives in the midst of creation so, you know, we really have to get away from this idea that the, the realest form of power is control or command and realize that actually the realest form of power is creation and collaboration. That's when you have the most power, is when other people actually take up their
0: own creative abilities. And, and that understanding, that perspective, is, is critically important, isn't it? Because if we're going to redeem power then there has to be something worthy of being redemptive there. And so often, as I say, I think, Andy, a lot of us mistake power for meaning that means you get to do whatever you want to do in order to other people around to do your bidding, which, as we're learning, is absolutely not the case at all. So then at the end of the day, it's understanding that perspective that allows us to see the good of power and how this can be then redeemed for God's purposes.
1: That was one of the big breakthroughs for me, was when I realized we often talk about power as if it's the same thing as dominance or domination. And actually, the domination is a, is a very weak form of power. If all I have over you is the ability to make you do things that you don't want to do, I
0: actually have very little Real power. And it's interesting you mention that. I remember thinking back to a lot of the media reports, for example, over Ariel Castro. This is that guy there in Cleveland that kidnapped Amanda Berry and and two other girls. Uh, and you would read the story on the surface and see the way which he had held these girls in, in the basement of this house with uh, wire ties around their wrists and chains and everything else. And you think, well, there's demonstrative of this guy being so powerful, wielding all this power over these girls. And yet the deeper you get into the psyche in the story, oh, you begin know. to realize, no, this guy's not powerful at all. In fact, he's pretty powerless.
1: Yes. And, the, and you know, Paul uh, will use the language of impri- imprisoned or slave. Slave. You're not a slave, especially in the ancient world, with someone who had absolutely no power of their own, completely dependent on their master. And Paul says, if we really get gave into that idea of domination, if we got what we think we want, which Ariel Castro did kind of get for a time, what he thought he wanted, the ability to dominate, we actually become slaves uh, of sin. We, we don't end up being masters. And that's why the serpent's promise in the garden is so um appealing and so deceptive because actually once the man and woman get what they want what we want to be like god without having to be in a relationship with god they actually find that they don't have what they wanted at all um, and that's what where domination leads. It, it actually, strangely enough, leads to the, the one who would be master ends up being, becoming completely so, mastered
0: by it. Really, Satan is in the process of distorting power then uh, from the very beginning and all the time. Yeah. I mean, think, for example, about Jesus there during the 40 days in the wilderness uh-huh. and the number of times that he was tempted. And, and I always read those passages and thought to myself, Satan, you're an idiot. I mean, to begin with, you're going to say, that you're going to offer very God himself here if you just bow down and worship me I give you all of the kingdoms of the earth and so on and so forth and I always thought to myself how can you give God what he already has it's all his to begin with he created it all so how can you give him what he already has Yes, but,
1: you know, in a way, Jesus is the only human being who has heard those temptations and not at some level given in. Mm-hmm. Now, not all of us uh, have heard the promise of every single kingdom, but all of us have that kind of twinge of an idea that we're made for more than we have. And and that's true. Uh, we, You know, we're made in the image of God. We're made for much more than we currently experience. But Satan insinuates this idea that there's a shortcut to it, that it involves domination. That it involves kind of cheating God of what God only God can give, and Jesus is the only human being who's ever realized that's actually not uh, that bargain will not actually work out. It's actually a lie, and if if he went through with it, he would find that Satan had mastered him, and instead he came out of that temptation able to to say no.
0: Bring us back to this full circle of the issue of. Um, bringing power back into the balance, first to understand mm-hmm. that it, it, it needs to first and foremost be used for the capacity to do good. And we see, when we really mention this even from the very get-go, as we see this in Scripture, the very first acts of God are crea- is the demonstration of creative power.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think one question to ask is, you know, with whatever power I have today, you know, you mentioned I have a I have a title, I'm executive editor of a magazine called Christianity Today. Well, that's a position of power. So the question is, I think there's a couple questions. One is, who am I using that power for? And if the answer is I'm using it mostly for my own benefit, to, uh, you know, increase my own notoriety or fame or my own wealth or, you know, any number of things, then it's pr- I'm probably going to end up using other people for my ends. But it might be possible to use even, you know, positions like that actually for others flourishing. And I think in the case of people who, say, own a business, so that it could be a small business or have a position like I do or are in charge of some people, you you actually are given power not for your own flourishing but for their flourishing so one of the most Im- important questions we can ask is who is flourishing because i have power <laughs> and if the answer is me and mine that isn't very much like the true God, but if the answer is the people who actually are under my care are flourishing, they're becoming more of what they're meant to be, they're expressing their own power, they're getting to do things they, they wouldn't have gotten to do otherwise, then I think we're on the path to a much better use of power.
0: If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Andy Crouch is with us. He's the author of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Now, when we come back after a quick timeout, we're going to go deeper into this topic, uh, how we can go about utilizing the creative and benevolent power that God has given to all of us um, in order to use it for his glory, to go deeper in our relationships. Not just with God on the, uh, uh, the vertical plane, but with others on the horizontal plane as well, as Andy just referred to. We'll take a brief time out and come back to more of our conversation right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as we're discovering in our conversation tonight with Andy Crouch, and certainly displayed throughout so much of scripture, uh, the power can be used in very many good ways. We think of creative power. We think of the power that has been given to us unto salvation through Christ's substitutionary work on the cross. Uh, And yet, as we see the good side, the good aspects of power, we also recognize there's a power struggle. There's a balance between power being good used for good or power being good used for evil. How do we go about harnessing harnessing power for the use for good – for the glory of the kingdom, and learn how to become, I guess ultimately, Andy Crouch, trustees of power. We're, we're, mm. we're kind of entrusted to this. It's just what we do with it, huh?
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. And, you know, the title of my book is Playing God. And we usually say that like it's a bad thing. Uh, and it is a really bad thing if you're not playing the true God. But the really the question is not whether you're playing god or not it's which god are you playing you're going to play some image you're going to bear some image with your life your life will either reflect the image of a false god the god of domination the god who has to get his own way or it will reflect the, the image of the true god the god who when things went so terribly wrong was even willing to give up his own son uh... to bear pain rather than inflict pain um so it really comes down to w- what you believe ultimate reality is about and if you believe that, that the christian gospel is true it's going to change i think how you use the power you have and also who you use it for you won't use it primarily for your own benefit and you will use it, especially, it seems to me, for those who are the, the most vulnerable, the least and the last and, and the lost that Jesus talked about so many times. Jesus kind of reorients our use of our power towards people who can never pay us back necessarily, who can't benefit us, but who our exercise of power can actually help them flourish.
0: This is kind of a delicate dance, isn't it? Because we see, for example, uh, examples of uh, servant leaders. These are individuals who who have power, maybe within an organization that they can hire and they can fire, things of this sort, uh, and, and yet they wish to... Instead of putting that power to use to demonstrate how much power they have, rather Mm. sharing it with others to to empower them. It's interesting how uh, perhaps there's a a certain power of shared power, isn't there?
1: Absolutely. And I think that's a a wonderful model. And uh, in a way, you know, I think power really is, it's supposed to be used to serve. Um, that is to say, it's supposed to be used to help others flourish who would not have flourished if you didn't use your power. So if you have one of those positions, your responsibility is to make sure that other people flourish. And that's, in a way, the deepest, I think, sense of what serving
0: well, is. Well, and we certainly see that, you know, throughout Scripture. I mean, for example, God is a righteous and holy God who created us, could have easily have said, well, huh. my creation has offended me, and therefore I'm going to use my power to punish and abolish my creation instead he used his power to bring about victory over death and sin through the work that his son did on the cross
1: it's amazing and you know as amazing as creation is in some ways the new creation paul talks about which is the result of the the giving of god and god's son on the cross is even more amazing the new creation is just extraordinary that god reaches into this broken world and doesn't act simply to wipe things out, or to even to command and control everything, but starts recreating right in the midst of it, and ultimately is going to make everything new, it says in Revelation. That's real power, (laughs) the ability to make all things new, to wipe tears from people's eyes, from everyone's eyes. Um, and we, of course, we only get a little taste of that uh, in our own lives. We're only given a tiny measure of that, and any more than we have would overwhelm us. But I do think we have access to that kind of recreating power as well as the sort of original creativity that was human beings' birthright as image bearers.
0: How do we start this process in terms of, I think, probably just evaluating where we're at in this power struggle Uh, that we have with God and uh, of course that that then spills over into every other relationship how do we go about analyzing Andy the way we're using our power either to good or to Uh, evil and then learn how to rebalance it so that it becomes a a redemption of power
1: I think that's a fantastic question and you know I would start with our uh, with our neighbor who we have seen, as James says. James says, you know, how can you love God who you haven't seen when you can't love your neighbor who you have seen? And we can sometimes be very clever about rationalizing our relationship with God, but our neighbor sees how we treat them. And I'm thinking maybe not so much our next-door neighbor, though it could be that, but the people who are closest to us, I think the place to start is to ask very to create an environment where you can honestly ask and honestly hear how am i using whatever power i have um and so husbands should ask this of their wives uh and wives should ask this of their husbands can start at home it can happen in the workplace to say you know i have power in this position perhaps and asking the people who are affected by that how am i doing and making sure that they can an- answer honestly now that takes time. That takes building trust. But I think other people will... The other thing that happens, most of us don't think we have very much power. But when you ask other people, what are some of my gifts? What are areas where when I do this, it really creates things? They'll give you insight into the power you actually have, even if you don't have a title that seems like it has a lot of power or a position that seems like it has a lot of power.
0: Now, let's talk then about relationship to Bringing that power balance back in our in our relationship with God. Mm. So then,
1: I so once we have started to uh, hear from our neighbors <laughs> how we're doing, I I think there's a huge place for you know what often the Christian tradition is called the spiritual disciplines, because the spiritual disciplines actually put us in a very powerless place. When I fast, or when I am silent, or when I pray alone. There's no one to impress. <laughs> it's not something I'm very good at. I think the interesting thing about the spiritual discipline, like fasting, is any any human being, uh, any healthy adult human being can do that. It's not hard to do, and yet it's impossible to do it well. When you seriously take up a discipline of fasting, you discover how, how uh, sort of uh, accustomed you are to filling every little need with food. And you discover how much you need God. and So I think the spiritual disciplines are, are ways that sort of train us to realize how dependent we've become on our own sense of ourselves and our own sense of power. And they, they sort of lay us open before God. And it's amazing what you discover about yourself mm-hmm. in prayer as you practice these disciplines.
0: And at the end of the day, it's not that God wants to strip us of power. It's how we channel and how we direct that, how we use that power.
1: He wants us to have true power, and more, I think, than we ever really imagined. Uh, you know, Paul, when he's trying to deal with the church in Corinth, and they're you know, taking each other to court, <laughs> he says, Look, don't you know we're going to judge angels? I mean, there's an immense amount of power that is waiting to be conferred on these redeemed image bearers that God wants to bring back into his creation, the way it was originally meant to be. So God, you know, this is the, the the great lie, is that God wants to take power away from us and keep us from having things we want, <laughs> when in fact God has more for us than we could ever imagine. But it's a matter of becoming the kind of uh, image bearers who can bear the weight of that and mm. who can not be uh, kind of corrupted by it.
0: To whom much is given, much is expected. Yeah, yeah. And that really kind of brings us full circle on this topic tonight. I sure appreciate you diving into this. Andy, because it's one that I think, you know, again, we we look at all mankind and we see a power struggle going on. We look at history, we see a power struggle going on. We look at scripture, we see a power struggle going on. We look at sin in our lives with God and we see a power struggle going on. It's not that power is a bad thing. I mean, Thank goodness for power. We wouldn't be on the radio right now if it wasn't for power. And yet if I walked up to one of the towers and decided to wrap my arms around it, I could also find out that the same power that's allowing our voices to get out all over the San Francisco Bay Area uh, could strike me dead uh, in the wrong fashion in a quick second. So it really comes down to our relationship with power and what we do with it.
1: Exactly, And the good news is God is at work in all this. And uh, that very thing that can electrocute, <laughs> and in a way did electrocute his son, right? His son suffered the worst that human power can do. That God can even overcome that and has something amazing on the other side of it that really brings uh, blessing to, to the world. And that's what I think the hope that we can have as we realize that power is everywhere. Uh, but But God's power to redeem and recreate and restore is everywhere as well.
0: You might initially hear the topic and say, well, this is a good book. I'm going to get a copy from my boss. (laughs) Um, Or I have a husband or a wife or whomever that seems to be on a power trip. But really, all of us struggle at one level or another with power, trying to redefine what our relationship with power is, and then to learn that this is not something that um, should be shunned, per se, that in fact, it's a gift from God. How do we, though, redeem it for his purposes? You'll find some great insights (coughs) inside the pages of Andy Crouch's new book called Simply Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. The new book, again, published by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as uh, all the usual suspects, Amazon.com, etc. Andy Crouch, thanks so much for being with us. Great book, great conversation. There's Andy Crouch, executive editor of Christianity Today, author of the new book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is an alarming statistic and one that both regionally in the San Francisco Bay Area and nationally is growing by an alarming rate. Would you be shocked to discover that approximately one out of three women, about 35% of the U.S. female population, at some time in their life has been the victim of domestic violence? Oftentimes, the violence takes forms beyond just simple verbal or physical altercations, sexual violence. Oftentimes, it spills into other areas of the family where even the children become victims. Women, quite often, are left with no other option but to run. But then, in the running, the question becomes where? Where do you go? Going to a friend's house, maybe a relative, well, the abusive partner or husband knows where they live. They just simply follow and bring the abuse with them. What options are available for women who find themselves victims of domestic abuse and violence where they can go find a place that can be loving? sheltering, give them an opportunity to get their life back on track again, all the while also welcoming their children. Joining me today in studio is the Executive Director of Shepherd's Gate Ministries. And Steve McCree, welcome to the program. Thank you. I guess the big answer to that question is, where do they go? What options do these women have? One answer is, indeed, Shepherd's Gate.
2: Absolutely, Craig. Uh, we've seen over 10,000 women and kids come and live at Shepherd's Gate over the years, and uh, everyone of them that has come through has has found a relationship pretty much with Jesus Christ, and that just totally transforms their lives.
0: This ministry is a real grassroots ministry in every uh, sense of the term, isn't it? I mean, I, I think mm-hmm. of the beginnings. Th- this began as one woman with one house, with one burden, to help women that were facing crisis circumstances and this has grown into a ministry now 25 30 years later that as you say has impacted the lives of tens of thousands of women and their families that's fairly remarkable
2: that's correct it's it's totally been totally god and um started a little three-bedroom house 16 women in a very short-term program we couldn't help them very long and it's grown just in the past few years to two campuses 90 women and children can live at a time and the services like there's 42 different classes we give them all bible based their lives are, are literally transformed when you see someone come in the door um The beautiful thing to me is they can come in literally black and blue, uh, certainly hopeless. In their eyes, Uh, the kids dragging their dragging their one little toy behind them or whatever, just all their belongings with them, and they've escaped, and they're not don't know what they're escaping to. And sometimes when they first walk in and see the beauty that God's provided there in in the actual physical buildings, they just weep and realize how much God loves them and how much the community. How many caring people there are. Because with no government support, it's all people in the community. And that's the way we uh, exist.
0: You know, the irony is we we hear of these statistics, 35% of women... Uh, at some time in their life will become victims of domestic violence of one sort or another. And, of course, we know on the, the severe end of that continuum are women that are dealing with circumstances where the husband is physically abusive, sexually abusive, maybe is dealing with a drug or alcohol problem. That spills over into now abusing the children. Women oftentimes are fleeing these circumstances. No sense of what they're running to. They just know what they're running from. And feel as if there's no one that cares, no one that can help them. They're afraid to go f- to the authorities because oftentimes the, the husband or the boyfriend is saying, you know, if you tell anybody, I'll kill you or I'm going to kill somebody else in your family. So yes. they're, they're they're having to face a tremendous amount of uncertainty into which then as they finally make up the courage, find the, the it within themselves to... Flee oftentimes right at the skin of their teeth. There have been cases of women that have changed their mind at the last minute and wound up dead. Yes. But now, as they've flown out of that circumstance, they've got no resources. The husband's shut down access to the checking account. There's no credit card. They might be full time mothers that have no marketable skills. Where do you go? What relative do you call and say, by the way, not only do I need to get away from my abusive partner but now i got a couple of young kids with me and so in that sense then shepherd's gate has really become kind of a an oasis for these women hasn't it
2: absolutely with the intensive programs and with the love of god uh, again they get everything they need to rebuild their lives for them and their kids and then also uh stops the cycle of abuse, And you're talking about the abuse. that can happen. Shepherd's Gate really takes in women and kids that are homeless for any reason. Much of that is domestic violence. Uh, one form of abuse is abandonment. One gal came in with five kids because her husband had taken the bank account, everything they owned, and she's on the streets. And within two months, uh, her life was completely turned around. She didn't know Christ when she came in, needed her children. And one by one, they found the Lord. And their, their um, entire demeanor changed so much. She knew there must be a, really a God for their kids to change that much. She had a house and a job within three months of coming to us.
0: So they're not only rescued from often very dangerous circumstances, they're given a sense of hope, in some cases hope for the very first time. You were mentioning to me, Steve, off the air of the story of one woman who has been involved in the Shepherd's Gate program for a while now. Who literally, in, in the middle of a, of a gathering, stopped and was crying and was expressing the fact that at that moment, she was experiencing genuine, unconditional love for the very first time in her life. And this is a woman in her 40s.
2: Yes, she's about 45 years old and just began bawling during our, actually yesterday's Bible study. Wow. My wife and I were giving, and she just said, it's the first time I've ever had love, experienced love from anyone, much less to understand that God loves me. And she said, you know, it's the first time I've ever been happy in my life, and it's the first time I've ever loved myself. Mm.
0: There's something different about the approach that Shepherds Gate takes. I mean, there are plenty of women's shelters. We know about them. You can go online and you can find a whole list of them in the San Francisco Bay Area. You can go to the Yellow Pages and find them. Finding a shelter is one thing. Finding home, finding family is something entirely different. As you look at the programs and services offered by Shepherds Gate, distill down, if you would, Steve, for our listeners... What's the one single difference about Shepherd's Gate from any of the other secular programs that are out there?
2: It is saturated with the love of God and the Word of God. And they learn that they um, have a Creator who has a purpose for their life. Uh, Our belief is that most of the women that come through our doors had a call in their life, a purpose to fulfill by God, and that the enemy tried to take them out. And when they learn that they were created for a purpose and have a purpose. Then we wrap, as I said before, about forty-two different types of classes and programs. Anything from job interviewing to parenting skills to budgeting, in with all the biblical principles they learn and the relationships that they they gain. It changes their life. Totally. It stops
0: the cycle, as you mentioned. Stops
2: the cycle totally. It gives
0: them a brand new start. It Four
2: generations. We've got one lady came in, and there's four generations in her family that were all touched by Shepherd's Gate. Wow. One young man was with us when he was five years old. He's now in his late 20s and is a pastor. And his brother was also with us when he was three years old. He and his wife now started a Christian camp up in the Sierras. So it's just beautiful to see
0: generational change. And and it demonstrates the power of the impact of changed lives through Jesus Christ. It also demonstrates this ongoing sense that as much as the beginning days with Alisanne that were part of this grassroots burden to do something, that that sense of grassroots community involvement continues to this day. People come, they volunteer, they conduct Bible studies with the women, training classes. You have churches that come in and volunteer, individuals that donate and support the ministry financially and prayerfully and, and by other ways. So I guess in a real sense that the original family feeling that was so much of what Shepherd Gate was about in the beginning has continued on to this day and that with the component of the life-changing power of Jesus Christ has really has been the then the, the driving force of what's allowed this ministry to impact so many lives
2: we do try to keep it home the buildings are structured to be they're, they're very large houses they are 11 bedrooms but they are their homes and so the women feel uh, security there they don't feel like they're in an institution uh, certainly not in a shelter. They feel like they're home. And even the kids, um, instead of being ashamed to say they're going to the shelter on Portola, they say, "I live in that big mansion on Portola," and they're proud to tell the other kids at school that. So it, it's just the self-esteem is just goes out of the roof. Both on the facilities and, and the home feel, and they stay. Uh, the families stay connected with us long after they're gone. They come back and volunteers. We have many of them that we hire as employees, both at our thrift stores. And they also become um, house moms and work on the campus and help ladies that were in the same condition they were.
0: So the impact is not only widespread, multi-generational, long-lasting. In fact, at the core, we could say the impact is eternal. Good morning. Yes, it is. From a spiritual standpoint. If folks want to come by and visit... Uh, this kind of one of those things where you need to see it and experience. People say, gee, I, I love the sound of a ministry like that, and boy, I'd love to get involved. Our church would love to maybe come down and volunteer. We'd like to get behind the ministry financially. Uh, in a real sense, uh, seeing is believing, isn't it?
2: Absolutely, and we love people to come visit. Uh, if they just call the office, 443-4283, 443-GATE. Uh, make an appointment. We'll definitely have staff there to lead them. I'd love to lead them through and uh, meet the people. Uh, so we'd, we'd love to have guests.
0: And of course, if you'd like to find out more about Shepherd's Gate, you can get details on the web by simply going to shepherdsgate.org. That's shepherdsgate.org. You have campuses both in Brentwood and in Livermore. That's correct. And so if somebody would say, hey, we, boy, this sounds like something we'd like to get behind and support, they can call, come out, visit one of the two campuses, both if they'd like, and of course, uh, get a chance to discover more about this dynamic ministry that's been changing women's lives and impacting those for Christ right here in the Area. Details again on the web at shepherdsgate.org. That's shepherdsgate.org. And our thanks to Steve McCrean, Executive Director of Shepherdsgate. Steve, thanks for dropping by.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure.